What's up? This is the You're Not Listening to This Podcast. <laughs> and I'm your host, Will James. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing because it's kind of ridiculous that I'm even doing this in the first place. But uh, why do something simply when you can be a little weird about it? <laughs> this is episode two of the podcast, and it is the companion piece to the Between the Notes.me blog post called While He Was Still a Long Way Off, which should post on either August 13th, 2015, or maybe August 15th, 2015, depending on just how motivated I am tonight. I'm recording this episode because the blog post I wrote ended up being pretty long, and if I'm being honest, I don't really read long posts myself, so in case you're curious as to what it said but just don't feel like reading it or you don't have the time to sit and read it, I thought I'd turn it into a podcast as well so you could listen in your car or wherever you might do that. I'm here for you. (laughs) All right, so let's get into it. I have this friend, this guy I met in college, you know, back when we were all intellectuals and people asked questions like, do you think what I think blue is 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 what you think blue is? Or, of course, uh, what's your favorite type of beer and why? (laughs) I had this friend. Now, one day, this guy asked him who his favorite author was. I remember quickly scanning my brain, cross-referencing typical college guy answers against this friend's general attire and facial hair choices. What's he going to say? Vonnegut? Thompson? Grisham? Maybe Seuss? (laughs) He better not say J.K. Rowling. No offense. Now then, my friend responded as sincerely as I can possibly stress to you. He said, Paul. The guy asked, Paul? Paul who? Paul, man, like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul. I mean, have you read Romans? Romans is legit. Now, the kid turned and stared at me like, what am I supposed to do with that answer? And in all honesty, I thought my boy was messing with the kid. I remember thinking that he couldn't have been serious. I mean, I grew up in church. I was pretty hardcore coming into college about the old good book. But who picks an author from the Bible as their favorite? I mean, that's pretty corny, right? It was just the three of us there, man. Keep it real. The newest part of that book is 2,000 years old. Surely there's some other author you could have said. But you know what? Now that it's some 13 years of living later, I completely understand. And Romans is legit. I mean, there is therefore now no condemnation? I mean, that's probably the most impactful sentence I've ever come across. But I think I have a new favorite. Now, Paul's still the man, but something really jumped off the page for me recently when I was skimming through Luke. I know that probably sounds weird. It feels weird even saying it, but but bear with me. The phrase goes, while he was still a long way off. Now, allow me to lay some context. See, Luke 15 contains three stories. Each story is intended to point out a flaw in the thinking of the church at the time. This idea that God, grace, salvation, etc., are for us on the inside, not for those people on the out. We aren't like them. Not to suggest that such thoughts are still rampant in the Christian community today, of course. So in response, Jesus tells these three stories. 100 sheep, 10 coins, and two sons. Now, it's not 99 eagles and one worm or nine crisp Franklins and a penny. It's, it's not a prince and a pauper. Jesus is clearly making the point that all are on equal playing ground, the preacher and the prostitute. But I'm only going to deal with the third story right now. 
and likely it's the most well-known of these stories, the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. It's verses 11 to 32 of Luke 15, if you want to look into it. Now, I love everything about this story. It's, it's so perfectly simple, yet incredibly layered. So if you'll allow me to paraphrase. See, there's this father, and it seems implied from the story that this guy's pretty rich. One of his sons comes to him and basically says, Pops, I'm, I'm tired of waiting for my inheritance. Give me my share now, and I'm going to go make my own way. And for some reason, the father obliges. The, the son takes off, blows all his money on partying and prostitutes, you know, like you do, and ends up dead broke. Famine hits. Things get real. He winds up having to take a job feeding pigs. Now, at the time the story was told, and to whom the story was told, having to work with pigs was considered falling pretty low. But because of famine and a lack of cash, he ends up jealous of even the pigs, wishing he could at least eat at the trough with them. I don't know, that's falling even lower. So finally, it says he comes to his senses and realizes that even the hired hands back at his father's house get three squares a day, yet here he is, son of the master, starving to death. He realizes he's got to get back home, but he can't just show back up after all he's done. He can't just waltz back to the father's house like nothing had happened. He's got to do something to earn his way back into his father's good graces. So he comes up with this speech, this great apology, where he'll tell his father just how sorry he is, how big a mistake he's made, and how he's not fit to be called the man's son anymore. He didn't expect or even plan to ask for forgiveness. He didn't feel deserving. He didn't expect to be taken back in his family. He, he had fallen too far. He'd crossed the line too many times. He'd already wasted his inheritance. So he decided to ask the father to consider taking him back in as one of those lowly servants so that maybe he could at least earn something to eat. But verse 20 says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him kissed him. Then the son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. In fact, he threw a giant party. The father gave him clothes and jewelry. He had a feast prepared. There was no condemnation, no lectures, no need for explanations, just sheer joy that his son was back. See, this kid thought that because he'd made mistakes, he would have to come crawling back home, groveling, begging, slaving away, just to hopefully get some table scraps. He never even considered that he'd be taken back in like he'd never left, let alone being celebrated. But not only was he welcomed back, he didn't even have to get all the way home first. While he was still a long way off, the father ran to him. Now, he tried to apologize and make a deal with his father. He tried to plead his case and admit his faults and failures. He hoped to earn his keep, but his pleas and confessions were completely ignored. He was forgiven the moment he turned back toward home, even while he was still a long way off. See, he didn't get it all right first. He didn't have a complete life change. There's nothing to really suggest that he even matured. He didn't build a life that mirrored his father's first so he'd have something to show for himself, some proof of his conversion. 
He didn't even seem to see the error in his ways until he was completely destitute. It's not like he snapped out of his selfishness while he had other choices. He came home because he had to. Yet all that was required of him was to simply turn back toward the father who was clearly already watching and waiting. And while he was still a long way off, the father met him where he was. It's a short phrase for sure, but it changes everything. See, so many times I've felt discouraged because I didn't think I was doing this whole Christian thing right. I felt that I had angered God with my misbehavior, my lack of faith, my stubbornness, my selfishness, my mouth, my mind. And then I feel trapped, like I have to dig myself out of this hole and check all these things off of this list before I can come back home. Like I've got to earn my way back into grace, back to love. I mean, why would he take me back now? Again. See, we have this tendency to put so much emphasis on behavior modification, so much emphasis on character and what being a believer should look like. Then we bury ourselves in the guilt of not pulling it off. And believe me, we are not pulling it off. None of us are. So in countless instances, the burden of these illusions either makes a person cynical and ambivalent toward even the idea of a God or afraid to seek him out until they've proven themselves worthy. Now, if you've ever felt that way, you probably know that the weight of that is immense. In fact, it's crushing. But it's also unnecessary. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 illustrates this beautifully, especially in the message translation. It says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Then come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. See, if you wait until you earn it, you'll never get there. But if you will simply turn back toward home, there he will be running to you, grace pouring all over you. No matter how far you think you may be, you can always come back home. And regardless of how good or bad your little speech, apology, or repentance is, it doesn't matter. The Father isn't even listening. He's already forgiven you. He's already planning your welcome home party, even while you're still a long way off. I love that phrase. But see, there's the other side of the story. See, the prodigal son had an older brother. The true point of the story, in fact. A brother who was, always did the right thing, never left the father's side, never embarrassed him, never abandoned him. This older son was checking all the things off the list. Church every weekend, reading his Bible every day, paying his tithes. This guy's not cussing. He doesn't watch porn. He doesn't lie. He's never wasted anything he's ever been given. As a matter of fact, when baby bro's crawling back home to grovel, big bro was out in the working his father's fields. He was walking back home, wiping his brow after a long day's work, when he heard the celebration. And then he finds out that the father has taken the brother back in, just like that? And not only taking him back, but throwing him a huge party? 
Well, if I may be frank, he got pissed. He refused to join the celebration. And why would he want to? He knew what kind of guy his little brother was. He knew his reputation. He was probably standing right there when his little bro demanded his inheritance and left in the first place. He'd probably heard all kinds of rumors about what he'd been doing out there while he stayed at home, working his tail off day after day. I mean, who do you think had to pick up the slack anyway? And now, after all his brother had done wrong, he just shows up and gets a party? Nah, he just couldn't get behind that idea. I mean, what was the father thinking? Now, as the story goes, the father ends up going after the older brother, too. Except this time, the older brother ignores what the father is trying to say. He waved his perceived spotless record in the father's face and thought, if anyone deserved a party, it was him. Why should this scum of a younger brother, who'd committed every infraction in the book, get all this pomp and circumstance when he, the elder brother, had done everything he was supposed to do this whole time and never had this kind of show thrown for him? The father's response is simple. My child, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But your brother was dead and is now alive, lost, but now found. See, the older son thought he'd earned his position with the father. He thought that it was his behavior that made him worthy. He thought his compliance brought him into the family, his hard work. He looked at all the bad his brother had done and assumed that by comparison, he was the better man. But again, look at what the father said. My son, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. What the older son failed to realize was what made him a son was not who he was, but whose he was. He hadn't earned anything. It was all a gift. He forgot that all have sinned and fallen short. He forgot that we're all in need of grace, no matter how righteous we think we are. Now, going back to Paul, he wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, that it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And even that faith is a gift from God. We're not saved by our own works, lest anyone should boast. Now, I don't want to be rude here, but most of us from time to time are that older brother. Instead of focusing on the unconditional, irrational, infallible love the father gives, we focus on the worth of the recipient. We compare, we rank, we judge. We fail to realize that if we truly understood grace and its continuous necessity in covering our own lives, we'd be too busy rejoicing to judge our brothers. Now, what deeply saddens me is we end up attacking people over the most sensitive aspects of their lives just to prove our own progress in some moral code. But these are things that people are already struggling with and feeling guilty about. So we all have our little things that we're working on, so we're not going to go proselytizing about those. We only jump at the big ones, the ones that we likely aren't even tempted by in the first place. Yet we think we're so righteous for not doing them. Now, I'm not going to make a list because that would be counterproductive to my point. However, I'd bet some quote unquote sin jumped into each of your minds the second you heard that. So when we see someone dealing with 
those big ones, whatever they may be, what do we do? Do we meet them with love, grace, and empathy? Or do we tend to get on our social media soapboxes and rain down judgment and condemnation? Or maybe we just get these little thoughts. Well, I may struggle with this, but at least I don't do that. And if you believe that, well, then I guess I'll just have to pray for you. Or I I thought he was supposed to be a Christian. Or I wonder what church she goes to. Now, no matter how nicely we may be able to word it, what we're really doing is patting ourselves on the back, putting ourselves up on the scoreboard. I mean, maybe things haven't changed that much since Jesus's day, and we're still categorizing each other as us and them. We are earning it, and they aren't. But just like the older brother, we're missing the point, and we're missing the party. See, we can stay in the Father's house, and still be a long way off. All right, before I let you go, there's just one more thing. See, in the story, each son at different points declares themselves worthy while proving themselves otherwise. One almost starved to death trying to do it all on his own, and the other missed out on the party because he couldn't understand grace. But do you know who's really killing it in the story? The father's servants. Think about it. Who did the prodigal son think of when he decided to come home? It sure wasn't his older brother, who he probably knew was already judging him. It was the servants. Who did the father turn to when it was time to ready the celebration? The servants. Who seemed to unquestioningly rejoice the return and forgiveness of the lost? It was the servants. They didn't have titles, no glory. There was no comparisons. They weren't off making their own way, wasting their blessings. Neither were they so concerned with being out in the field doing what they thought the father would want. Instead, they simply stayed close to the father. They listened to him and rejoiced with the father. Nothing points to them being proud, jealous, or judgmental of either son's behavior, or for that matter, the father's, even though it was seemingly irrational. They weren't elevating themselves or degrading anyone else. They weren't keeping score. They understood. See, while the older brother couldn't celebrate because of what he thought about his brother, the servants couldn't help but celebrate because of what they knew about the father. May we grow in grace and in God to become more like the servants who simply trusted the father and less like either son who seemed to only be trusting in themselves. All right, so that's it. As I've said before, I I get a great deal out of writing these posts myself, so I hope there was something useful and helpful in there for you too. So don't forget to follow the blog at betweenthenotes.me, a blog based on the idea that all life is music and God speaks between the notes. You can follow me at Will James Music or my wife and I at Will D Jam, that's W I L L D E E J A M on Twitter, or uh, you can, at uh, WBJ2 on Instagram. Or you can even shoot us an email at willdjam at gmail.com. Questions, gripes, critiques, all that is welcome, as are any topics you'd like to hear discussed as well. Uh, It won't always be just me running my mouth. Old Sweet D will co-pilot some of these, and you can pick her brain as well. 
All right. Taking up enough of your time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. As always, love you, even though I don't know you. This has been the You're Not Listening to This Podcast.